Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. All the boys. Center. It sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issues of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 211 for June 26, 2008. Wow, we have got a great episode to follow up our uh, All Tony Nom special, which I'm pleased to announce that three of the four people we interviewed on uh, our Tony Nom special took home the award. So uh, congratulations. This episode, we've got the entire cast of Vanities on. It's uh, coming to Broadway in November. We've also got... The exclusive Broadway abridged radio presentation of Les Miserables abridged. Yeah, you want to check that out? We have got cabaret artist Shira Ben David with musical director Adam Ben David. Uh, he's currently musical directing a little show called Jersey Boys. They're here to talk about their cabaret act and album. And we have also got fresh off of his Tony Award win for the first ever sound design Tony Award for musical for South Pacific, we've got Scott Lehrer in to talk about the world of sound design. Uh, I tell you, it's, it's interesting. A lot of stuff involved that I didn't think, <laughs> that I didn't even think about. So we got a great show, so uh, let's kind of jump right into it here with uh, Vanities. Up close. I just gotta say goodbye and fly into the We have got a treat for you, although it's a little crammed. We have brought in the entire cast of an upcoming Broadway musical. The full cast is somehow stuffed into this theater. We have got the cast of Vanities and the three lovely ladies who are all starring in it. Sarah Stiles, Lauren Kennedy, and Annaliza Vanderpool. And uh, why don't you guys introduce yourselves really quickly so people can connect the voices with your names. Well, the highest pitch voice would be Sarah. <laughs> That's hard me. to pick out. <laughs> I play Joanne. Oh, I guess I'm next. The lowest voice. <laughs> hey, I'm the alto. <laughs> I guess that's true. That's true. Um, I, and I'm Annalisa, and I play Kathy. And I'm Lauren Kennedy, and I play Mary. 
Go Tigers. Go Tigers. <laughs> All right, now, Vanities is based on a very popular, you know, long-range play that's played ar around the country everywhere. You mm -hmm. know, if you're in theater, a lot of people probably know it, but for those who don't, tell us a little bit about what Vanities is to kind of just kickstart this. How are we going to do Here we this? go. You wanna, I know. You want to take this one, Lauren? <laughs> <laughs> um... Vanities is was a play that was off Broadway in 1976, written by Jack Hefner, and he wrote um, a story that was sort of close to his own experience. But it's about three girls, and it tracks their life and their friendship over a few decades, um, starting in 1964, the days the day that President Kennedy was shot, and it goes the play goes up through 1976, I believe, mm -hmm. and um, uh, this our production is a little bit different. Not only because they've added um, music to it, it's a musicale, but also because they've added a fourth scene, which is another 10 years later. So it's really exciting. And it's uh, composed by David Kirschenbaum, right. who's been on the show a few times. Uh, it's also a friend, so I'm very excited for you guys, everybody. Yeah, yeah, the music is amazing. He did such a great job. Yeah, it's incredibly evocative of those time periods because it's 64, 68, 76, and mm -hmm. 84, I think. I'm not sure. Yeah, like, 88? Yeah, 80s. I don't, I, have mid 80s. Yeah. I, it's unspecified, but it's <laughs> um, in the 80s. So, you know, he really runs the gamut of all those different styles, so we get to sing all different kinds of music. And yeah, and the script. Crazy. Scenes are amazing. Oh, oh my yeah, God. a lot yeah. of nudity. Yeah. Lots <laughs> of nudity. You're, you're just trying to lure the guys in now. Yeah, exactly. Oh, please, come on. Look at us. Oh, you know me too well. <laughs> uh, now, Sarah, you've been involved with this show the longest. You've been. Yeah. Have you been through the whole kind of development process with this? I or? think there was one reading prior. And then I uh, did the Palo Alto production, and I've been with it ever since. So it's it's coming up on two years this month. So despite the fact you've been with it so long, how uh -huh. rigorous was the audition process for the Broadway production <laughs> for you? Please. <laughs> uh, yeah. She had to come in and read with us. She was sitting behind the table. It was pretty much like, do, are we good with Sarah? <laughs> no, no, no. No, they've been very cool and very loyal and, you know. It's it's been awesome. Mm -hmm. It's been awesome. I'm so so excited about this cast too. I, these girls are so fantastic. I can't say better. You know enough good things about them. Oh shut up! Oh, you say up. more. You, you definitely say more. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, well, let's kind of go down the row a little bit and kind of just uh, talk a little bit really quick one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe do this like the dating game. I don't know. I like long walks on the beach. <laughs> Annalisa Vanderpool. Yes. Uh, you uh, have the distinction of closing out the Broadway production of Beauty and the Beast. Thanks for knowing. And uh, what would be your next favorite show to close out? Because this show is going to run long enough that you're not going to be the final actress in Vanities, right? I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to be kissing. Are you going to stay with her for ten years? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I am dedicated. Well, Mama's buying a house. <laughs> if I don't get any other work. <laughs> um, you mean what would be my favorite show to close out? Yeah. Oh gosh, that's really hard. But you know, I really love to dance, and I really love Candor and Ebb, and I would love to be in um, Chicago or Cabaret. There you go. I would love to love to be in Chicago. You'd be great. Thanks, Lauren. I would love that. Roxy. Good question. <laughs> and uh, Sarah Styles. Yes. You're, you're, Same question. <laughs> no, no, oh my no. God, I can't answer that. Um, you're currently in Avenue Q, right? Yes. Which puppet is the sexiest? 
The sexiest puppet? <laughs> I mean, I'll, I have to say Lucy. I mean, her her boobs are much bigger than mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's the sexiest puppet, I guess. But I love being Kate, too. I love the show. I'm going to be so sad to, to leave it. I'm so glad I'm going off to do this show because I love it even more if that's possible. I didn't think that would be possible. <laughs> Very diplomatic. Yeah. Well, no, it's true, though. No, I really, I I'm, like, so blessed to be to be in it right now and then traveling to this one. That's true. Hello. And Lauren Kennedy. Who you, the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> Is this your Broadway debut? Hello. Are you kidding me? I know. How rude. We gotta get the, excuse <laughs> me, are you kidding me? We gotta get the gypsy robe I'm ready. Kidding. I'm totally going to be getting the gypsy <laughs> Not only am I the oldest. <laughs> yes, when did that happen? <laughs> Seriously. I, my, no, I, I was um, in Sunset Boulevard when I was 20. That was my Broadway debut. Um, and I've also, I did a show called Sideshow, and I did Les Miserables. <laughs> um, I was almost in the final cast of Les Miserables. Um, actually, it's a pretty well-known fact that I can close any show. <laughs> oh, no, I'm just kidding. Oh, but, uh, there, I, it's true, though. It's like, so funny. It's true. I was like, I went into Les Mis, I was like, sweet, I'm going to have a job forever. I was in it for two weeks, and they were like, we're closing. This was the first time around, yeah. of course. But I played Fontaine in Les Mis, and then I played um, uh, the Lady of the Lake in Spamalot a couple years ago. I replaced Sada Ramirez. I, it didn't close that show. No. That show's still going strong, y'all. <laughs> um, so, no, no, this this is a, an exciting um, opportunity for me. I've never gotten to originate a part like this on Broadway. I've done a lot of new shows that haven't made it, or were, I did South Pacific in London. So, th- But this is a, it's, it's a landmark for me, for all of us, because this kind of material just doesn't come around. Like, you know, it's such a good show. It's such great music and an amazing script. Yeah, so I we mean, are, we're so freaking lucky. We're, we're really lucky. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 no. This 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 show was coveted by you know, almost everybody and mm-hmm. you know, cuz they're great parts and good parts for women. I mean, that you know, that's not always the case. You guys are talking it up way too much. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to have so much to live up to. <laughs> no, no, well, no, it's the truth, though. It's very exciting. I hope we can do it justice. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know a lot of people are pretty excited. And one thing, I, I'm guessing we have a pretty fair contingency of uh, people who uh, probably don't need this introduction, but Annalisa, you were in a popular Disney show, correct? I was, called That's So Raven on the Disney Channel. <laughs> Chelsea Daniels. Chelsea Daniels. <laughs> really quickly, what's it like being in the Disney machine? It's kind of fair to call it a machine, isn't it? Uh, it, it would be <laughs> fair. I, I don't know about everyone else, um, but I was really lucky. That was one of really my first auditions, and I had a wonderful cast, and you know, I had a wonderful opposite. Raven is an amazing comedian and really made every day so easy. And I really miss making people laugh. And I really miss a nine to five. <laughs> but it was good and they, they treated me very well. And, and actually Beauty and the Beast, which is also Disney, treated me very well as well. So for has have you done any television besides the, in between your stage work recently or is, um, or is theater kind no. of like thanks for asking is theater very conscious new direction I mean I, a lot of you know young actors have a problem kind of transitioning from the child actor face to the adult and I'm just wondering if kind of well I was kind of in that theater. awkward stage I think I got Raven when I was about 16 so I was kind of getting into normal but I did a lot of theater like uh, civic led operas and just 
you know, community theater, touring theater, all until I got Raven. And then I did a movie called Bratz. <laughs> and then um, I got uh, Beauty and the Beast right after that and was Bratz really lucky. Bratz was huge. It was bigger than Transformers. <laughs> that is so rude. Um, <laughs> no, it's hilarious. Yes. Bratz was huge. I don't know about the reviews, but, um, <laughs> um, but there were dolls. No, but I was lucky to be in it, and it was, I think, really my first movie. Um, you think? <laughs> you know what? It really wasn't my first movie, but it was my first professional movie. As opposed to, you know, independence or you know, behind um, a school or something like that. <laughs> or um, things movies. I don't really want to talk about, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't even know what I was talking about anymore. But yeah, and then I got Beauty and the Beast, and now this, and I just and I love theater, and I've been lucky. <laughs> so you've been kind of where are you rehearsed? You're not rehearsing this in New York. You're kind of no. You're because you're, uh, you're just in town for a couple days. We right? haven't even yeah. started actually. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, we we do it in um, Pasadena. This summer. The Pasadena Playhouse in California. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we call the out-of-town trial. <laughs> but um, but so, we've been, we did a, a reading. Yeah. Uh, and, um, Two-week workshop. And, and a bit of recording. And, you know, but we get to really delve in, yeah, at the Pasadena Playhouse, which is a lovely theater. Yeah, and I can't wait to work in it. Mm. And apparently really great shopping out there. I know. <laughs> so, we're going to be in so much trouble. Yeah. So we're going to be poor. Uh, <laughs> what's each of your favorite stores to shop in? Anthropology. Oh. Do you need even ask? Second. I second. Yeah. You, awkward. Awkward. <laughs> <laughs> um, not the best of shoppers. Um, thrift stores? Any near thrift store? Mm. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, well, kind of. Yeah, mm. no. I, I, really I love like, the thrift store. She likes Zara. to raid our wardrobes, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, every time we have a photo shoot, I, I don't bring any clothes after we either Sarah's or Lauren. I'm like, I brought eight bags. I brought eight bags. It's horrible. It's horrible. I really like Zara, though, which Zara just, oh, just I, came to California recently. Yeah, and yeah. their spring summer line it's is beautiful. real cute. Yeah, it's real cute. <laughs> yeah. We're so girly. It's oh, yeah. just disgusting. Well, that's what the whole show is about. I know. <laughs> So yeah, but back to the show kind of and and this following the the people. Uh have any of you ever actually done the original play of Vanities? Because I know this is a show that How old gets do we done look? a lot. <laughs> people still do it. I'm not talking no, about do. the original. No, no, it's a show that gets done. She wasn't born in seventy six. Yeah. Were you? No. Oh, but I was God. born in the seventies. But, but I bet if we check I, I bet if we check Samuel French, there's probably like fifty productions of a year there around are, the Of course. And <laughs> no, I've I've never done it, but I have to say that my sister and I when I was a, when we were kids, um, were obsessed with it because I was born way before it started. And um, there was an HBO special that we saw, and my sister and I just became obsessed with vanities. And then we, we were doing this um, dinner theater production of Sound of Music, and it was sort of like in rep, or they were rehearsing the next show, which happened to be Vanities. So my sister and I would <laughs> like so this is so stupid and dumb. I can't believe we did this, but we would go and sit in the front row with like, and we put on hats that said like press and we'd like take notes oh <laughs> that's so cute and we, we just loved it I mean these three girls were just just doing the show and just acting up a storm and we were pretending like we were press and that's just, just not that second. story does not even sound real I can't even believe it's that. a real story that's so cool yeah. I wish my sisters Isn't, and I did that <laughs> we were pretty stupid and pretty dumb I mean even had like a fake camera you know 
And we were if just you're a, a guy, fun. ask if you got beat up a lot when you were young. <laughs> <laughs> What's sad is Lauren still does that. Yeah, Lauren is so the paparazzi. She, she was taking so much footage of our recording yesterday and photo shoot. I mean, she brought out a camera, and I was like, what? Is that yours? It was huge. Yeah. So awesome. The photographer actually used her camera. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It was a big moment for me because I am such a, like, a wannabe photographer. And Joan Marcus, who's, like, the premier f- photographer for all Broadway shows, used my camera yesterday because her assistant forgot to put batteries in her bag. Yeah. So she's my camera. Oh, we are going to be in so much trouble for this. Uh, Why, oh, Joan Marcus is never going to get hired again. No. She forgot to like, hire fine. you. You've got the camera. Okay. <laughs> I think she'll be fine. That girl is a rock star. Yeah. And so yeah. it was very cool for me. <laughs> are, are we getting off subject? <laughs> um, we're right where so we're anyway, that, that's, that was my early experience of vanities. Was but I have an interesting question, okay. I think, based Bring on it. kind of what you're talking about as a young paparazzi. Mm-hmm. Do any of you have any, any interesting stories from the shows you've been in of fans waiting at the you know the ropes outside for you after the shows? Oh. Yeah, I'm sure we all do. Okay, um, let's hear some of them. Okay, I've <laughs> talked a lot, so somebody else. I don't really. I need to get some fans. <laughs> you don't, you don't have if any... anyone out there wants to be my fan, please <laughs> let you me know. <laughs> you can find me at fairstyles.com. Oh, no. God, no. I'm I couldn't sorry. get .com. <laughs> no. I'm sorry to bring that up. I didn't mean to. I'm on Facebook and MySpace. <laughs> I, I did spam a lot with the David Hyde Pierce and Hank Azaria, so that was kind of crazy because literally um, nobody gave a rat's ass about me or anybody else except... David Hyperson, and Hank Azaria. But, um, so we would come out and we'd have to do the signing and they were like, were you in the show? <laughs> it's like, uh, no, I was one of the dressers. I always was like, no, I work backstage. <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. But I was unrecognizable because I looked like Annalisa. I had red hair and so I'd come out in my little blonde, you know, hair, ponytail and they would have no idea who I was. Yeah. Um, I think, Redhead, I think you need to take the floor on this one. Go, girl. Got I got a great story of when I was walking here to this interview, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty much walking here in the hot, hot heat and a couple of girls recognized me. I think they were in a school and um, I was just walking and they said, can I have your autograph? And I always do it, but not that it happens all the time, but I said, I'm so sorry, I'm running so late, which I was. To and this. I was, to this in- interview. Yeah. And I actually was really late, <laughs> as you all know. <laughs> and, um, I said, I'm so sorry, I'm really late. I would, I would, but I'm just so late. And I walk a few steps and all of a sudden I hear, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good story. She's still upset about it. I know. She's Tell them you're sorry. Uh, you really would have said. I, really, I don't even know if I can say the B word. On, on. I know. You might it's a podcast. Up. Yeah. Oh, okay. We, we've heard yeah. worse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then well, I'll say it's a lot more. If that's the case. <laughs> 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 anyway. I don't love in that game. No, but I've had really awesome fans, and yeah, I'm just, I'm lucky, but. Um, how, many, how often do you get stopped, actually, when you're walking? Oh, not often at all. Most you've people. Ripley Greer a couple times, too, though. You definitely do. I, you know, I don't know. I think just kids do if they recognize me, or I, I get a lot of looks. You know, I, I, they think it might be, and you know, I'm sure if I went to Disneyland or something. <laughs> no, nobody really cares. Nobody really they cares think about you're me. An attraction. <laughs> yeah, totally. But I, I, I always wonder how you feel getting recognized. I'm, I'm the type of slow person. I. I Whenever I see anybody kind of famous on the street, I don't re- usually, unless they're like really fake, but 
I don't usually recognize them right away, uh-huh. so I'm staring, trying to figure out where I know them from. Yeah, oh, absolutely. oh I do that too. Oh, I do that too. It's like so embarrassing. <laughs> oh. and, and then when I realize that they're actually on TV and I don't know them, I'm like going, oh, did I just look like... <laughs> Oh, how about me at the LAX airport? Oh, you have to tell that story. That is hilarious. (laughs) Tell it, tell it. Oh, no. (laughs) I was at the LAX airport, and I see this guy walking towards me, and I'm walking down, and I think, oh, my God, I have to, oh, my God, I went to school with him. I was like, hey, what's up? (laughs) Oh, my God. And then he looks at me like, who the fuck is that? (laughs) Keeps on walking. I was like, that is so rude. I cannot believe he just blew me off. (laughs) And then as I'm turning back, I go, oh, my God, that was Chris O'Donnell. Donald. <laughs> oh my gosh. And he thinks I'm a freak. <laughs> hey! What is up? That's so rude, bitch. <laughs> you know what? On my flight over here, I saw Lauren Bacall, you guys. And, you know, the flight stopped because all, all the storms and we had to stop in Cleveland. And she was taking her dog out to, to go to the restroom, her dog to go to the restroom. And I just stood there forever waiting to go to the restroom looking at her, and I just didn't have the guts to say anything. I thought she won't care, but it was Lauren Bacall. That was pretty I, cool. It was really cool. I wanted to say, I did a Vita, and I got to say, so Lauren Bacall, me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wanted to tell her all this. She wouldn't have cared, but, you know, I missed out. I'm, I'll, I'll always regret it. Not saying something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Just saying, I'm... It's nice. I think that's what's really cool about some of the things that... Are going on. I mean, even though the internet sometimes can be like scary, but at the same time, it's cool. Like Facebook and my pay, my space, and people can actually contact you so much easier mm-hmm. than they could before. And except I do, for I understand that Annalisa's page Anna, is yeah. hers. She's a fake. Contact not they, you. <laughs> they can fake you. They can. They can't do Lauren, that. That happens. Lauren and Sarah have been emailing me on Facebook <laughs> and MySpace. And I'm not even. On. I'm like, she funny. is not responding. What is wrong with her? <laughs> bitch. <laughs> bitch. I've never been on Facebook. No, I I know. I've never I know. been on MySpace. But the thing is, is that you know there are there are a lot of performers and stuff who are on it, and it's really them. And people can send you a message or something. And not that you, people should always expect that you you'll write them back because maybe other people aren't like that. But I. I I usually try to because I have a lot of kid fans too because of my association with Jason Robert Brown and he has a, like an unbelievable amount of, of of fans and people who love and adore his music and since I've worked with him a lot and I released an album of his music people associate me with him and so I try to always you know sort of give to them what I wish somebody would have you know if I had had that kind of opportunity and oh get over yourself to, 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 <laughs> seriously to just say hey good best of luck or whatever, you know, and just sort of give tips if I can, if I have time. I'm also raising a four-year-old child, so I don't always have time, but <laughs> I, I do think that's cool. I like that uh, that sense of being able to be approachable and sort totally. of give back. I think it's neat. I, I wanted to ask the three of you kind of each for advice you would give to uh, young actresses or actresses maybe even just like in college or just out of college who are kind of looking to get their foot into the industry, what your thoughts might be on like a good first step. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, it's so, uh, everyone's sort of path is so varied. It's hard to even um, say this is sort of the equation. You know, you, uh, what I usually like to say or try to say is that, um, that people just really um, follow their heart. You know, if you want to do it, if you love it, if you can't see yourself doing anything else, then this is what you should do. Um, there's a lot of negatives involved with being in show business and being in the theater. There's a lot of hardships. It's not always easy. But I do think that the um, the, the benefits and the, um, the community and the pluses really outweigh the negatives. Um, and just, you know, be strong and, and hearty and love it. 
and um, go for it. Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. I think you just have to keep your focus, you know. If that's what you want to do, then then just follow that path. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do yeah. a lot of dreaming. Dream big. And really, you, what my mother says, and I think she's so right, really always be doing it. Really every day, whether it's taking classes or being in a show or whatever. I mean, you can you you can really get worse if you're not doing it almost every day, mm-hmm. that's and that's right. what's really hard too. And you know, they say all those things about bring yourself to it, be unique, bring what you can bring. You know, you don't try to be someone else, but mm-hmm. you being the character, or whatever, blah blah blah. But and also, I'm I'm embarrassed to say this, but try not to think of what other people are getting and the parts that they're getting and how you should have got that. Yeah. And, you know, so many times I see a redhead on TV and, oh, I wish I could have auditioned for that or blah, blah, blah. You just have to realize, you know, opportunities are very far and few between. And I think that uh, that's such an interesting point because I think a lot of people expect so much right off the bat these days because there's a lot of young people on TV and a lot of people, young people in movies with High School Musical. And all. So I think people want that immediate gratification yeah. and um, and that's really rare I mean it's fabulous but it's really rare And but I think something that's long earned and hard earned is so much more valuable and so much more fulfilling so I, I also think it's important for people to just work I mean work begets work in, in, in our business it's who you know and who you've worked with and who trusts you and who likes to be around you and who and wants to work with you and you only get better again. by working with and you people get, and you, you only know, feel learn. better what's better about yeah. being around people who love to do what yeah. I'm telling you, I, there's been times where I thought, I could just go back to my hometown and do and work there. And I really could. And one day I probably will. Because it's not it's not the Broadway stage I want to be on. It's any stage. It really doesn't matter. You know, it's I the got, same thing. I, I used to act. And you know, now I've gotten into writing and stuff. But when the very first time when I came to New York when I was 18, I just kind of had that realization right away. I was like, you know, I mean, this is great and I enjoy the productions. But the truth is, a lot of people just work and work and work and hope for a chance to act, mm-hmm. you know, briefly, you know, and, you know, like, in reality, I don't care, I, I, at that point I didn't, I still don't, you know, I didn't care about fame, like, well, if I want to act, I can just do that, Absolutely. you know, anywhere, Absolutely. still be working, but hey, I'm working and I'm working, yeah. <laughs> at least. No, it's the truth, because I, I always find that as much as I like being on stage and performing, I also love the people, and they're the people that I want to be around, you know, and those the, the arts and theater attract those people, whether you're in New York City, whether you're in Chicago, whether you're in Raleigh, North Carolina, or you're in Des Moines. Those people are attracted to this medium. And that's who I want to—I love those people. Yeah, so. never do you laugh as much. I mean, yeah. I haven't yes. laughed—I'm sorry, with like, like I do with you guys in a long time. Oh, my God, I know. It's, it's so unique. I'm acting like I'm special. 80 years old. <laughs> I <laughs> a long time. Darling. <laughs> Another topic that's usually is interesting. It's actually, uh, you know, th- this I think can—it's it's always entertaining to hear these stories. And I think for people who are aspiring to get in, it's also like, you know, a good thing for some of these people who maybe are at the same place that I'm going to ask you about. Um, I imagine each of you has one of the two following stories. And I'd like each of you to really quickly think um, either your most embarrassing theatrical-related job or oh. <laughs> or the sure. strangest day job slash, you know, pay-the-bills money you ever had to, to Oh, God. Do. I mean, I have them right now. You ready for this? <laughs> Bring it. Okay. My strangest theatrical job, I think, was doing the tour, the national tour of Tommy Toon's Dr. Doolittle. And funny enough, because I'm doing Avenue Q, you'd think I'm like a puppet girl now. (laughs) But I was the puppet parrot, Polynesia. But the puppets 
were not, we didn't have a puppet wrangler. Like, nobody was on the tour. It was like a, uh, that knew what they were doing with puppets. They didn't hire anybody. So they ended up putting this bird on this giant, like, steel pole (laughs) on dress rehearsal. And it had these, um, like, strings in the butt of it that I had each finger controlled a different, like, either the beak or the the wings. Oh, hard. It, it, yeah, impossibly hard. No one taught me how to. Tommy Toon basically gave it to me. Was like, figure it out. <laughs> I was like, okay, but they put it on this steel like rod, and on a dress rehearsal, and I couldn't even lift it. You're like now you're so fucked. Uh, yeah, right. I know. I'm like five foot two. Like I couldn't. I couldn't get through the door. I mean, that was definitely a surreal experience. Also, working with Tommy Toon, who's such a legend. You know, he's like eight feet tall and has this bigger than life sort of feel about him and it was just an all around very strange production <laughs> but Sounds it. but let me tell you the worst day job I ever have and I am going to admit this I can't even believe it I was an elf at Macy's <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I mean my husband who wasn't my husband at the time just my boyfriend <laughs> would come to the rug department the carpet department <sighs> at Macy's and just stand and laugh at me <laughs> because I had the pointy shoes oh. and the pointy hat and was dealing with screaming children all day long because because to me that felt better than getting a waitressing job <laughs> I don't know why at the time you were working your craft uh, yeah, right? My little singing oh, my Christmas my carols. Gosh. Oh my god, I, d- I admitted it. I totally there just it admitted is out it. There. Yeah. All right, that's it. That's mine. Oh my goodness. You're it. You got Raven so early. I know. I really don't have any good stories. I have, like, I, I guess. A kind of funny story. I was doing, um, I was in a group called Kids Next Door when I was in high school, and I was doing it with my girlfriend Anna, who's actually in um, Greece right now. She's made it to Broadway as well. And um, anyway, I had to sing Santa Baby, and I remember doing it every night. And then one night, I, I'd have to always sit on the guy's lap, like in the audience, you know, pick a guy out and sing the whole song to him. <laughs> and one time, I sat on his lap, and then I turn over and I looked, you know, the rest of my group in Kids Next Door, and they're all looking at me really weird. I'm like, Susanna, sweetie, <laughs> blah 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 blah. And I didn't realize till the end of the show that I sat on a woman <laughs> who looked just like a man. <laughs> I mean, just like a man, but apparently not to anyone else. I mean, she just had the shortest of short haircuts, you guys. I mean, it was horrible. It was so embarrassing. Yeah, my director was really upset with me. Like, I did it on purpose. It was horrible. <laughs> horrible. I'll never forget it. That's that. <laughs> I don't even know how to follow that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, all these heartwarming Christmas stories. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have to be a holiday job. <laughs> that is so funny. Oh, my good sense of baby. <laughs> it was horrible. Oh, I'm going to start having to pay royalties if you sing it one more time. <laughs> oh, sorry. sorry. Oh, my God. Okay, I have to get over that. Uh, I don't have too many, like, really horribly embarrassing um theatrical stories except uh, what does that be theatrical like for instance uh, you know uh, well the, I worked at King's Dominion <laughs> that, that was what's that what's it? oh I love it nobody knows what that is <laughs> Paramount's King's Dominion at the theme park in Richmond Virginia oh, and yes. I did the pop show <laughs> did six shows a day and we did you have the Britney mic oh no 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 we had handhelds oh okay, okay right. and um, actually a friend of mine oh, I reconnected 
to on Facebook was in it, and he, he put together this little video for me last night that my husband and I were laughing at so hard because, first of all, the hair, this was 1990, by the way. I was 16. Oh, God, I just aged myself. <laughs> and um, and um, the, the, I had, like, the big poofy bangs and, like, a big, like, white blonde platinum <laughs> French Jersey braid. Hair? Yeah, French oh, braid, French braid, you know, and just like, and we were in these jean dresses, <laughs> and I was singing, um, ex- uh, Express Yourself, <laughs> don't go for a second, baby. <laughs> and it was so, so, I mean, so unbelievably horrible. I had pitch problems. <laughs> I was like singing off key. <laughs> it was a thousand degrees, by the way. Ugh. But oh, it's just too funny. I mean, I'm so laughing at this little video and offended by it. We all have the same to see time. it. Yeah, we do. I mean, please. I'll post it do you on watch my How I Met Your Mother? No. Uh, you should. There's a character on there as the the teen pop past Robin oh. Sparkles. Mm, that, fabulous. Uh, yeah, you'll have to check it out. Just oh, to, it's just all too funny. <laughs> it's just so funny. Are any stuff. of us getting that in the fourth scene of Vanities? Well, the big my, poof hair. The big poof hair. No, I have that '90s real severe oh. bob. You know, with the bangs and the thing. The yeah, they would have look. We'd have to do our curtain call in it. That'd just be. I have a Karen Walker like updo. Oh, mm, that's like very very. I imagine nice. with three of you on stage. And, and it traveling from decade to decade to decade, that you're going to have some pretty intense, fast costume hair makeup changes. Oh, oh you, you have no it's idea. It's all on stage. Yeah, oh, it's it's all we're stage. doing it all. We have like n- okay. Now the guys outfit. are going. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> no, when we said strip, we were not kidding. Yeah. <laughs> like we are going to be in lingerie, going in and out. Yeah, there's, there's no restrictions. We, I mean, we pretty much have like our our basic chemise that we wear, which is like a slip, and you know. And Pretty then much we a slip, yeah. Put yeah. everything on top of it. I mean, we are literally dressing, undressing on stage a thousand times. Yeah, yeah there's no and intermission. We never fifteen leave. seconds, by the way. We, ha- I mean, going into our cheerleading outfits, I think we have like. 15, oh, we don't even have 15 not even seconds. 15 seconds. Uh, not even five seconds, you guys. I don't know what they're thinking. <laughs> it's like eight, it's eight bars of music. We have to we go have, behind something that's called a periactoid. A periactoid. We obviously have a lot to work out <laughs> yeah. before the Pasadena plays. But the costumes are fabulous. Oh, they my are God, so yeah. They're ridiculous. amazing. They're fabulous, ridiculous, horrible. Yeah. I mean, everything that they should be. It's so yeah. fun. Yeah. Our costume designer's a genius. Yeah. Amazing. So... I'm excited for the show to come. Like I said, I've known Dave Wow. I've heard a little bit of the music beforehand. I'm really excited. But I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a moment because I, I haven't heard this stuff, but I want to give you a chance to answer some of these possible objections okay. and, and turn them around. So, well, objection one. Ah, oh, this sounds like a Lifetime movie. <laughs> oh God, you're right. So you're funny. right. <laughs> <laughs> Scene. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. No, no, no. It, it not at all. Uh, it's very gritty. It's very um, smart. If anything, it's like Sex in the City. Yeah. It, if anything, it's like Sex in the City that that men will want to come see because not only will their wives have to drag them, but because it's three women. Come on. <laughs> and um, it, it's racy. It's adult. It's absolutely not not. Super um, precious and kind of over emotional. No, it's, it's, it's hearty. It's pretty dramatic, and like, it's also like you know we're not oh touchy feely f- females. Speaking we're, speaking of that, I think it's important to mention. I believe there's actually two editions of the play, isn't there? One that's editions? one that's more sanitized for high schools. Oh, prob- mm. oh, oh, really? Well, they might because I think high schools do I do b- the show. I believe there's oh, a oh, sand- the play. of the original play. Oh, with no words in it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 and I want to point that there is a sanitized that many people might have seen a sanitized Sanitized version. version. No, this is not not sanitized at all. This is, we we say cuss words and we... And the subjects 
are the very intense. Are very yeah, and, and you know, maybe we'll just add some more cuss words just for the fun of it. <laughs> yeah, you know? we'll just while we're changing our clothes <laughs> in 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also, inadvertent. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it also is really funny too. It's hilarious. It, I think it's funny and really funny and a lot of the beginning. And I'm excited, not to sound sexist, but about women bringing their daughters. I think it's so, yeah, that I would agree. it's really wonderful for that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Okay, objection number two. There's only three people in the cast. Is it really a Broadway musical? <laughs> Listen, we got some personalities. I will say, fill we're barely up the theater. The <laughs> At least it's not a one-woman show. <laughs> no, I don't think that matters. I don't think it matters either. I think the face of Broadway has changed so much, yeah. and what um, the the. Uh, the parameters for what a Broadway musical quote-unquote is. You know, it's not necessarily has to be 42nd Street or something big and huge with a huge ensemble and a big chorus and a huge pit and band and all that. You know, this is a, a very full story. You, we've had things like Drowsy Chaperone, Spring Awakening, and all these other shows that have changed the way in which storytelling is being presented on Broadway. And I think this is just another addition to that. And it's only 90 minutes. Yeah, it's 90 minutes, and it's... Oh, I, I love that. I, I personally hate it. The, I'll mention one show that I don't have a, too much of a problem offending if they do, but <laughs> the fact that they you know, decided that they needed to in order to give value or something to stretch Little Mermaid into two and a half hours. Oh, yeah, it's not... Oh, my it's God. It's two and a half hours? I didn't even know that. Yeah, that's what I heard. It's, that's what I heard. That sort of doesn't seem Yeah, Beauty right. and the Beast was two hours and 45 minutes. Well, you know, it's, I, think I love that Xanadu was so short and tight and funny. Exactly. And that's another great about, example. You know. yeah. It's like 85 minutes. You come in. You get all the bang for your buck. I mean, me, I the, think the, thing, the great thing about Vanities, too, is you're going to be so surprised. Like, once the show starts... You, I think you're going to be surprised at where it ends up. Yeah. It's going to be shocking, you know, because that first scene is entire. The pace of it, the dialogue, the yeah. the look of it is so different than what it ends up in the fourth scene. It's amazing. You you yeah, get because to see we all so die much. and then come back to life. <laughs> it's really exciting. It's a limbo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Vanity's scheduled in November. Is that right? Is that when opening is? Uh, that's what everybody's saying. Is there a theater set yet? I know that. We pretty we think we know but what it is. Yeah, bit. we'll just we'll keep you guessing. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple opening. Fortunately, unfortunately, depending well, on. Well, of course, there's always, there's always lots of things can happen in the next three months. Yeah. No, we will be there. We no, will, that's secret. not what I mean. The secret. Yeah. I mean, a lot of shows close in the summer and stuff, but. And, uh, we'll but I'm so glad to have Sarah Stiles, Lauren Kennedy, and Lisa Vanderpoel uh, here to talk about Vanities, your careers. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, I'm glad you took time out of your hectic schedule and this like two-day period that you were just oh. all together here in Thanks New York. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. we appreciate it. And everybody, fun. definitely catch Vanities, and we're going to hopefully here roll out with a short snippet of one of the songs from your demo. Yay, go see us! Vanities! And we're going to be okay till forever.
call board. Well, first off, I'd like to give a congratulations to Life in a Marital Institution for their move from off-off-Broadway to off-Broadway. I had a chance to interview James Brawley on the show on Volume 203, so you can check out that interview and also go check out the show at its new home off-Broadway. Next, In the Heights creator, composer, lyricist, and leading man, Lin-Manuel Miranda, will visit the New York Stock Exchange on Wednesday, June 25th. Or I guess he just did visit the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, his uh, Broadway hit, In the Heights, recently won for Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Best Original Score, Best Choreography, and Best Orchestrations. To celebrate this momentous occasion, Lin-Manuel Miranda did ring in the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Then, the 18th annual Broadway Bears Wonderland raised $874,372. I wonder why they didn't mention how many cents. For Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, setting another record for the annual event held at Roseland Ballroom on June 22nd. Next, famed comic actress TV host Joan Rivers will bring her new play, Joan Rivers, A Work in Progress by a Life in Progress, to London's Leicester Square Theatre this summer. Celebrates gay pride at the cutting room. This weekend, June 25th through 27th, for three nights running, the press read. Catch the acerbic rivers as she dissects popular culture and most likely the people in the front row. So uh, she's never been able to schedule anything during Pride Week, so watch out, gay. She's been saving up materials for years, and she's looking at you. Joan Rivers Does Gay Pride is scheduled to play the downtown Manhattan venue each night at 8 p.m. There will be additional show on June 26th at 9 p.m. If you've listened to this really quickly... And to conclude, two-time Tony Award winners B.B. Newworth and Nathan Lane will star in an upcoming reading of the Addams Family musical, according to a production spokesperson. Elephant Eye will produce the Addams Family musical, which will be penned by songwriter Andrew Lippa and Jersey Boys writers Marshall Brickman and Rick Elise. Improbable theater founders Philip McDermott and Julian Crouch will direct and design. Although Lane and Newworth will be part of the August reading, no roles have been cast for the Broadway production, which is scheduled for the 2009-2010 Broadway season, following an out-of-town tryout. And uh, just to remind you, uh, if you're looking to do any audio recording here in New York City, I've got a great studio here in Times Square. Convenient, easy, comfortable, relaxed atmosphere, and yeah, you can afford it. So uh, if you or you know somebody who needs to get some recording work, whatever it may be, musical theater, voiceover, I also do uh, a lot of pop, rock, R&B kind of stuff, uh, feel free to give me a buzz, 646-345-3433 to discuss your project. And the call board is being sponsored by Roy Aria Studios, located at 43rd and 8th, hey, in the same building as us, in the heart of the theater district. They've got tons of great rehearsal spaces, performance venues, at a great price, and they've got a staff who has been involved in all aspects of production and truly knows how to help out however you might need it. The spaces are equity approved, and they're easily accessible by Port Authority, Penn Station, and all subways. Feel free to give them a call at 212-957-8358 or send an email to bookings at Roy Arias Studios for any inquiry or to view the spaces. Broadway Abridged Live, when you just don't have three and a half hours for a show. Broadway Bullet is pleased to bring you Broadway Abridged radio presentation of Les Miserables Abridged. Subtitle. Does that mean it's regular length? Scene. Stark 80s British mega musical lighting. A chain gang mines entirely unrecognizable tools in the background. Enter Javert. Now bring me prisoner number 246810. Jean Valjean is brought before him. It is Javert, my nemesis. Commence exposition, 246810. I was in prison because I stole a loaf of bread to feed my sister's baby, both of whom we will never mention in this musical ever again. 
I was a good, sympathetic character and was imprisoned unjustly. Prisoner 246810, you are free to no longer provide exposition. Here. What is this? It's a piece of prisoner paper. You show it to people who want to hire you, and this way they know you were a prisoner. How thoughtful. Scene. Jean Valjean tries to find a job. Yes, I will hire you. Excellent. I'll just give you this piece of prisoner paper here. You have prisoner paper? I can't very well hire you. Oh, poor people in France had it tough. You know, you could consider just not giving me the prisoner paper. That would betray my strong moral values, and I have to uphold my strong moral values. Oh, hi, passerby priest. Scene, monastery. I am a priest, and I'm going to let you stay here in this monastery. You get to sleep in the room of precious silver and other examples of the church's extravagant lust. Must uphold strong moral values. Must uphold strong moral values. Must. Who am I kidding? Yoink! Please, please! Enter a police chief. Go ahead, Valjean. Tell his reverence your story about how he gave this to you as a gift. But I did give this as a gift. I just forgot to give him these weighted object candlesticks as well. What? Thank you for apprehending him, so I... You said he stole. Well, not exactly. My, my wife was woken up at three in the morning for you. My poor, consumptive French children can't get back to their slumber. But you see, I was teaching him a lesson. A beat. Then a beat down. Stupid house of God making me feel morally guilty and waking me up in the middle of the night. Scene. Jean Valjean escapes. This meaningful incident has made me realize the error of my ways. I'm going to start again. And to prove it, I'm going to rip up this prisoner paper. Symbolism ensues. (laughs) Scene. The future. But not really the future, just ahead ten years. Life is tough. Life is tough. Life is tough when working in a factory in France in a time before trade unions were formed. Who's next for payment? I am ready for my yearly wage. Oh, yes, Fantine Provi. <laughs> Here's your wage minus your you didn't let me fornicate with you penalty. No, please. I needed to feed my bastard daughter who I unlovingly sent away. You are a total slut and you still won't sleep with me. You're fired. <laughs> oh, well, no other jobs in the universe. Better take a prostitution. Suddenly, a large, crappy set piece falls on some guy. Help, I got run over by this very slow-moving cart. Enter Jean Valjean, who has inexplicably gone from ex-convict to somehow becoming the mayor. I'll save you. Valjean convinces nobody that he is struggling while lifting the styrofoam cart. Enter Javert. Wow, I don't know anybody who can convince nobody that they're struggling to live a piece of styrofoam like that, except for Jean Valjean. But we're about to execute a Jean Valjean that we found so it has. You can't execute Jean Valjean because Jean Valjean is me. He opens up his shirt and reveals that his chest says, Two, two four, four, six, six eight, eight, ten. ten. It's my prisoner tattoo. Um, we don't do that. Is that finger paint? Run! Scene, hospital. Jean Valjean enters in on Fantine Pro-V. Come, Cassette, and let your crazy blind hurts when I pee, mother, take care of you. She's not here. 
You're delusional because you have gonorrhea. It's syphilis. Yeah, well, it seems to be the same disease that Lucy, Kim, Charity, and other musical females have. Which is? Hook up with a heart of gold. Who the hell are you? I'm the man who looked on when my morally corrupt foreman fired you. <laughs> and then did nothing while you fell into a life as a whore. <laughs> ultimately contracting the disease that is to cause you to die in the next six, seven minutes tops. <laughs> oh. Will you raise my child? Fantine gets beamed up to heaven. Weeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeee
Javert does some heavy thinking. Oh, wow. A guy who I casually pursued around a very small area of France for a few years has spared my life. Definitely a good reason for killing myself. Fall! He spins around a little bit, then dives into the floor like it's a slip and slide. Stupid. Scene. Jean Valjean is dying. So the musical must be ending. They can't go on forever, right? Enter Fantine Pro-V as a ghost. Hi, Valjean. Hello there, Fantine Pro-V. Hi, Valjean. Who are you? Eponine. Uh... Right, we never met. How awkward that God chose me to guide you to the next world. Enter Marius and Cosette. Father, I haven't seen you in years, but we suddenly figured out where you were a few moments before you died. Your father wanted me to pretend I didn't know where he was. But why, Papa? Why? I was tired of your shit. Now, I have a story to tell you about a man who stole a loaf of bread and spent four hours singing the same three songs over and over. Tell me, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Oh, no, he's got Alzheimer's. Please, Father, don't die. Jean Valjean gets beamed up to heaven. We Suddenly, every dead character ever shows up. Oh no, ghosts. And you and I are the only ones in all of France who didn't die. How depressing. Marius, will you do the honors? It's all that a good, loving husband can do. Marius beats Cosette to death with the weighted <gasps> objects. <sighs> now it is I alone left. Marius runs the candlestick through his own heart. <clears throat> He and Cosette join the others on stage, all of whom are profusely bleeding all over. To love another person is to see the face of God. Red and Blackout. Broadway Bridge version of Les Mis did not have the benefit of a big pile of junk on stage. All we had was the talents of these actors. My name's Jake Friedman, and I'll take Scholz for a thousand. My name's Rachel Pincus, and my hooker with a heart of gold tests came back positive. My name's Ron Verrode, and my mom thinks I'm hilarious. My name is Gil of Road, and I'm a ripoff artist. For more hysterical, written, Broadway abridged adaptations, visit broadwayabridged.com. Cabaret Corner. All right, I am here in the studio with Shira Ben David, a, a rising star in the cabaret scene, did uh, The Oak Room uh, last year and got rave reviews and is back for another show at the Algonquin Hotel. And she's here with her brother, her musical director, Adam Ben David, who is also <laughs> a conductor. He uh, currently conducts uh, Jersey Boys. He's done a lot of other Broadway stuff. And they're here to talk about Sheer Ben David's new album, On a Carousel, as well as her new show, Come Summer, that is at the Oak Room currently. How you guys doing? We're doing well. Thanks hey, for having thank us. Thank you. So, uh, first off, tell us a little bit about the, the new CD project, On a Carousel. Uh, well, that, that, that's actually uh, very exciting for us because it's, it's all live tracks. And, um, you know, I personally, uh, I like hearing something when it's, it's, it's live and raw and you're, you're getting the real sound and, and, and quality of the voice and the, and the piano. Um, and you're getting the experience of that particular performance. So these are songs that we've been doing for over a decade now. And we, we, we finally just, you know, we've done some performances at the Metropolitan Room, uh, some performances in California. And we, we decided, you know, that we, we picked the tracks that we love the most over a long period of time and started to get the album going. Yeah, and we, what's really fun is that, you know, we, the Metropolitan Room, 
you know, which is one of the the new, you know, really great venues in the city to perform. Yeah, together. I actually haven't gotten there yet, but I've been hearing a lot about. Yeah, I think New York Magazine actually rated it the the, the, the new hot top cabaret venue. Yeah, so and it, what's cool. great is that when they when they put the sound system in, and, and you, I'm sure you'd appreciate this, they 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 put in a fully like hard disk recording studio is so anything that they rec- was recording live was going onto a into a you know into a computer basically so we took all these live tracks and it, literally I could go into a studio and we were able to really mix each of the instruments so when you hear the album it really sounds like as if it had been you know recorded in a studio but it's a live album you know and that's the exciting thing is a lot of time you hear live performers and the album is all sort of sounds everything all the instruments are in the background and everything <laughs> sounds and then you hear the voice this this we really spent a lot of time mixing live tracks to make it sound like it was in a studio but but it it, it still has that live feeling and you hear the audience at the end and a lot of people have been listening to the tracks and they listen to it and I don't tell them it's live and then they hear the applause at the end and they went oh I didn't realize that was a live you know performance so we're very excited about that so forging a cabaret you're, you're pretty much cabaret only Shira right I mean are you a, are you a musical I, theater performer I can say that well, I'm or? cabaret but I, I have yet to have anyone help me really understand what cabaret is <laughs> aside from uh, being very self-indulgent and liking to sit and uh, talk about yourself a lot and sing songs well by, by cabaret I mean more basically like performance oriented solo performance yeah no I've always done solo performance um, I, I you know Obviously, anybody would love to be a part of a, a Broadway show or any other types of ways that a singer could express themselves. But, you know, for some reason, my life has taken this direction and I've ended up doing um, individual solo performances. And I haven't found anything yet that uh, anyone's grabbed me for. So so what kind of steps? So how did you work on building up your career to get in? I mean, it's not an easy thing to play at the, you know, the Oak Room. No, and it, we had sort of an interesting beginning um, in, you know, and I don't know whether anything like this will ever happen again, but a couple of years ago, the Oak Room had a, you know, they had a very um, a wonderful manager there who was like a real visionary. And he, he decided that he wanted to do something sort of similar to like what you might see on American Idol, but really kind of step it up, you know, its game and do it for the cabaret world and try to find, you know, try to hit pay dirt, try to find some new talent. And they called it the Oak Room, the Algonquins Young Artist Competition, you know. Snappy name. I know, it really. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, Barbara McGurn, who's been running the room forever. Uh, Who is Simon Cowell? <laughs> <laughs> Who is the evil? I, listen, I, I don't watch the show, but, you know, I, I remember my brother called me and he said, uh, yeah, they're doing this, like, cabaret competition. And they just, you know, told people to send in CDs with you doing American Songbook. That was the key. And here I was, you know, with a lot of Brel, live Brel recordings. Yes, mm-hmm. you do um, a lot of Jacques Brel. That's kind of what you're... Yeah, and it's... Of. Yeah, exactly. But so we, we, we had some lots of different recordings. We, we sent in some stuff. It ain't necessarily so. Summertime, you know, some Gershwin. And, um, and I didn't hear anything. I didn't even think anything of it. We just sent it in for fun. And then, you know, six weeks later, I'm sitting at work and I get a call and it's the manager of the hotel. And he's like, hey, you're one of our nine finalists. So I was like, great. Awesome. We show up, you know, a few weeks later. We do a kind of a two-day intense competition. They invite all the critics, you know, so everyone from David Finkel to Rex Reed to Adam Feldman to, you know, all of them came. Uh, they were the judges. And, um, you know, there was two, le- two levels. Uh, we had the first part of the day. We got into the final three. And then, um, and then I made it as the, the first runner-up. And I thought, okay, well, that was fun. I went home. And, that's, uh, and then the next day I got a call from the manager of the hotel, and he said, 
I want you to come in, like, right now, and you're going to sign a contract for a week run. And I was like, all right, done. So, you know, I kind of removed myself a bit from this concept of, like, you know, the competition and thought, I just have to go in there and, you know, kick butt and just be me and not see this as a as a prize, um, and, and really make it make it worth something. It was you know, a tremendous gift, and I was blessed enough to go in there and, um, you know, had a really wonderful review from the New York Times. I was overwhelmed by everything. I'd never had critics write about me. I was totally like, <laughs> I gone except, from like except their parents. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you know, and and we went from like basically you know, paying for a room to open up a room ourselves and, like, putting a little show together yeah. to going from that within a year's time, uh, singing in a hotel where they're, like, putting me up in a room. I was, like, on a, another planet. So from that, from that point on, it's just been, you know, kind of an amazing journey. Yeah. And, Adam, your kind of, you know, career focus has been, you know, conducting it. Yeah. I kind of take it here. Well, I, you know, I, um, I, I played piano for a lot of shows, um, and that's sort of how you, most people work their way up to the conducting. You know, you start out as a coffee boy and then a rehearsal pianist. Uh, my first show was Once Upon a Mattress, the revival with Sarah Jessica Parker. And I started out uh, as the assistant conductor for that. Um, and I was like 21. I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> I was like, I li- literally, it was a, I was in a daze, basically. Like, I'm, you know, like one day I'm just, you know, getting coffee and the next day I'm in, you know, in a, in a, in the pit at the Broadhurst, you know, and then I'm conducting at the Broadhurst, um, Sarah Jessica. And uh, and since then, I, it's just, it's been great. I mean, I've gotten to do uh, a lot of really huge, huge bombs. Um, <laughs> I did. We've a, been there for all I, of them. I played, I, I, was the, I was the lead piano, p- piano player for a musical called Dance of the Vampires. Um, yeah, that's beloved. It, which is beloved, <laughs> and I was and I was a big part of it. So <laughs> I was a huge part of the, the largest bomb on Broadway, um, and uh, and then a, a sh- another show which technically was a bomb but actually was a really great show, um, which I'm very proud of, was a musical called High Fidelity. You know, I, I have actually said on the show I. Th- think High Fidelity was so much better than so many of the shows that ran last season. Mm-hmm. I th- I th- High Fidelity, its problem was the people who loved the movie and the book High Fidelity did not want to see a musical of yes. that. Yes, there, there was already, I think we, we had, the, the odds were stacked against us before we But it was happen. a good, I was, You know, I really for, for people that show. don't love necessarily the typical Broadway show, I mean, I know for myself that, you know, I, I, don't, I, li- I don't like all of the elements of what Broadway sometimes offers where they just sort of like break into song constantly and there's like sort of campiness at times. For me, it was like the perfect show for well, me. Well, sure, you and love like, Jacques Brel, so I mean... I was like, into like it. Well, I was into the Guns N' Roses, you know, themes and the Beastie Boy themes, and I was, it took me back. You yeah, know, but it took me back to is, growing up in the 80s. It was that awesome. music is very theatrical, though. Guns N' Roses, Beastie Boys. I stand behind, I stand behind uh, Guns N' Roses to this day. But uh, yeah, so, so High Fidelity was really amazing experience. It was my first. Um, I'd always been assistant conducting. You know, I assistant conducted at Wicked and, you know, played piano right before that um, at Light in the Piazza. And then suddenly I get to do High Fidelity and I'm conducting, you know. And, uh, and then, then the show closes a week after we open. So it was a little disappointing. But, but luckily I got a call to go and conduct Spring Awakening. Um, and so I took over there. And then I got the call um, to, to take over as a conductor for Jersey Boys. 
and that was, you know, just it's just been a huge blessing in my life because it's it's steady employment <laughs> on a really good show, and so I'm not used to working on good shows that run, you know. So and and then and on top of that, I get to I get Spring to Spring Awakening's got a little life left in it. Oh, it's great, but you know, the uh, Jersey Boys was you know sort of seemed like it seemed like the right move, and 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 I love I love Spring Awakening. I mean, that's it was that was a blast to be on stage with those kids, and and it, and I and I took over right after the Tonys. So I got to sort of experience the the fervor, you know. So it was it was an amazing experience. But Jersey Boys is still like every night there is is off the it's you know we're, we're so jaded over there because every single show is like Saturday night, you know. The the Wednesday matinees, the audience just goes nuts for the show. So there's my Jersey Boys plug. I don't really need to plug the show because it's doing really <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, just take that out. Take, take, take that. Out. Cut that. Cut that. <laughs> Well, we got a treat here. You guys are going to perform a couple songs live for us mm-hmm. uh, in the middle of this interview. So uh, what's this first song that you'd like to do for us? Well, the first song we're going to be doing is actually the first song on the, the album, uh, I Miss the Mountains. It's by Tom Kitt, who did High Fidelity and uh, is also a friend of ours, wonderful, wonderful uh, musician. and Terrible human being, though. <laughs> <laughs> Just a miserable... He's really no, a horrible He's, he's one of my good friends. Yeah, he's actually he probably him. one of the nicest guys uh, yes. working on Broadway. That's yes. why we jest. And yes. uh, Brian Yorkey wrote the lyrics for this, and it's a... It, you know, the song was actually meant for a character who, you know, goes from mental illness to, you know kind of being on a road to getting better by taking medication and she she actually looks back very you know with with tremendous longing wanting to be that crazy uh you know fancy free woman again and 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 I I relate to the song um well I am a little crazy but uh, outside of that I also feel that we all kind of look back at you know times when we were more carefree and uh, and miss it so I love this song all right, ready to sing here? 11 a.m. Let's do it. Time Let's do to... it. <laughs> <laughs> there was a time when I flew higher Was a time the wild girl running free Would be me Now I see her feel the fire Now I know she needs me there to share I'm nowhere All these blank and tranquil years Seems they've dried up all my tears And while she runs free and fast Seems my wild days are past But I miss the mountains Oh, the manic magic days and the dark depressing nights I miss the mountains I miss the highs and lows 
snow and soaking you with rain. I miss the mountains. I miss the pain. Mountains make you crazy. Here it's safe and sound. My mind is somewhere hazy. My feet are on the ground. Everything is balanced here and on an even keel. Everything is perfect. Nothing's interesting kind of job that's actually related to music that kind of keeps you going yeah, between w- all these gigs. When I graduated from NYU, I was, you know, I, I ended up pretty sick and, and, and I, I probably would have easily gone in the direction of getting headshots done and waiting online and, you know, hitting the Broadway scene. Um, but because I needed a, some, some respite and some time, I ended up working uh, at a synagogue as their cantoral soloist. So basically, I every Friday night, every Saturday morning, I lead services with a guitar, um, do music with the little munchkins on Sunday mornings, and uh, those are children, <laughs> not actual little donut holes. But that would be kind of funny to sing to donut holes, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, I just really got involved in the, the synagogue scene as my quote, day job, but it's a day job that's highly rewarding. There's a lot of loaded things in that statement, like, quote, loaded. synagogue scene in the, the quote, <laughs> day job. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, take it as take it as you want to. She, you know, she, hey, she, talks, about, she talks about that in her show. I mean, yeah. Yeah, she'll, she'll go there. You know, the, the, the Jews have definitely been supportive. Um, thank you, Jews, thank if, you. You're, if you're out there listening. Um, and, you know, so I, I ended up working at one synagogue for five years, and you know, I, I definitely did cabaret. I, I put my little shows together. Uh, and, you know, and then, like, American Idol started happening. And it was it was kind of annoying because, like, congregants would, after a bar mitzvah would be like, you should try out for American Idol. <laughs> and I was like, it's uh, I'm all right. You know? <laughs> I think I'll put my one show together a year. And um, 
so then I, I ended up working more full time at a synagogue in Rockland County for the last three years um, and have and really got very much involved in actually preparing kids for their bar and bat mitzvah and leading the adult choir and teaching Hebrew high and the whole thing. And I'm definitely you know ready to move on right now. I'm actually going to be chilling out a bit um, on the synagogue scene. I know you like <laughs> And I'm going to be at Temple Israel in New York City uh, doing music. You know, which I, which is really the, the the element of the job I love the most. I no, really just love to take the guitar and just, you know play music with the kids. No more Hebrew high. No more Sunday mornings. That sounds like my worst nightmare. No Hebrew, Hebrew high. high. It's horrible. Yeah. Hebrew high is like for myself. the for the for the ultra Jewish parent that forced their child to go. Hebrew high. Yeah. 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 It's like a bad... Disney's working on a musical. It's a bad <laughs> television Hebrew show. High School Musical 4. Well, I think they should actually make a horror movie called Hebrew High. You know what I mean? Where Hebrew High. Just like one little Jewish kid, like the one little nerdy Jewish kid just goes crazy. It's terrorized and by you. slaughters everybody in the entire yeah, Hebrew class. And you're like the bad, the bad guy in it. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be like Ash, you know, from Evil Dead in it. And part of my arm will be... What was it again? It was a... I, sure, I, I think people, people don't like do Evil Dead no. on Broadway Bullet, do I they? Maybe. I don't, I don't do Evil My Dead. Husband, I think we had somebody from Evil Dead on. When no. Oh, well, they did the musical. They did Evil Dead the yeah, musical. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. You know what? This I is really... This is brilliant. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this is a, a shout out to my husband, who's a an avid uh, horror movie uh, comic book fanatic. So just the fact that I've mentioned Evil Dead just gets me... In a really good position you lined know, up over the next month. You know it's a Ben David interview if they talk about high fidelity and evil dead on a Broadway, <laughs> on a Broadway podcast. And you Jews. Know, I yeah. love to say, after the fact, they can say, evil dead, it was like they said, you know, the whole thing is campy and people are just going to come, so we don't actually need to write anything good. <laughs> <laughs> people use the word campy very loosely in Broadway. Like, basically, anytime anything's really bad, they just go, oh, it's kind of like campy. Yeah. I hate to say, though, a lot, of, a lot of shows, they think they're writing good things and it comes out. Bad and campy, unfortunately, sometimes. Yeah. You know. So, you know, thank God I... <laughs> Have you conducted any of those shows where you've had to watch something bad and campy over and over and over? Well, okay, campy. <laughs> I did it. I assistant conducted a musical called spot. Bombay Dreams, which was a Bollywood musical. You know... And I liked that show, but... I it, liked it, it was, too. It was campy. It was, I mean, it wasn't... Yeah, it was... That wasn't campy. It was just kind of like naive. Dance of the Vampires was pretty campy, I think, probably. You, you know, Bolly, you know the 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 Bollywood, the, the choreography in that was just awesome. And it, no, there were some cool moments in that. You know, do you remember the do you remember the Sweetie character? Do you remember the sweetie character when he, yeah, yeah, when, when, he, when, he <laughs> when he died, they kind of like lifted him and like, you know, like <laughs> pulling him around. And I literally tried to like keep myself, I had to hold it together. Listen, they had a 30-foot waterfall, I mean 30-foot water cool. fountain on stage yeah. with beautiful Indian women dancing in it. I and, mean, and nothing better than that. You know, I thought the music was good. I thought yes. the choreography, I thought the lyrics were kind of lame. Yeah. The story was, eh. Yeah. But the, the dancing was so fresh and so amazing that yeah. for, it made the ticket price for it me. Did, it was like, uh, it was worth it. I'm... Thank you. You're, you're a fan of all my flops. <laughs> I did not see Dance of the Vampires. Oh, you missed out. You can, you can probably watch it on YouTube or something. But does it ever get hard for you to focus and direct seeing the same show over and over? Do you ever get bored and go, oops, I missed giving well, with, a cue? With, with Jersey, well, with Jersey Boys specifically, there are a lot of cues. It's very um, through-composed. There's music all the time because it's sort of like a, a movie experience. There's you know talking and then movie un- and music underneath it. And if literally there are moments where I could kill an actor if I give a wrong cue because a piece of scenery comes down when I give a cue. So I, I really make sure that I'm wide awake when I go in to conduct the show. And um, I, 
you know, if any of the actors or anyone is listening to this, I'm always thinking about your life, you know, is on the line, basically. So you do have to be very aware. If you're just playing in the orchestra, you know, to be honest, most of the musicians will sit there with a cup of coffee and a newspaper, and if they've been doing the show for a couple of years, they can sit and read the newspaper while they're playing the show, you know, with, with no mistakes. That's a horrible, dirty secret that you're, you're no, putting it, out there. Anyone could look in a pit and see newspapers and see magazines. Mm, in the, the South pit. Pacific people. Are I've there. had like, Adam, they can't. They must be so hating life. Yes. I actually yeah. have to look like I'm... Yeah, I have to wear a tuxedo. <laughs> that is an old school... Adam's called me from the pit before while he was in the middle of playing a show. Sure. I'm sorry, it's the truth. I won't say what show. It was, it was a long time ago. It's not ago. Jersey Boys, because no, the Jersey no. Boys I'm, I'm conducting the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anything I've done days. wrong in the past... I've heard I've Domino's is delivering pizzas to you during the middle of it. <laughs> that's, my kind of, that's my kind of gig. <laughs> yeah, so now we're, we're stepping up our game, and we're, you know, we're, yeah. we're in the midst of a two-week run um, at the Oak Room, and we're doing our Come Summer show, and it's the first time I've ever that been... That was a blatant plug, Shira. What? No, you, I, li- I like the way you just moved that I'm in. A, listen, I'm hardcore. She didn't trust that I was going to get back around I know. I, I'm sh- he would have listen. Let, let him set that up. <laughs> Adam. All right. I, I love you, Shira. I, I'm, I'm on a learning curve here, but, but I have to be aggressive. Because you I, do. I agree. I have a tendency to be very shy, as you can see, and not speak up for myself, <laughs> so I, I really wanted to put it out there. All right, so tell them about the Come Summer show. <sighs> Well, now I feel awkward about it. <laughs> well, why don't we hear one more song? Yeah, yeah let's, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that. All right, we're going to do um, John Bacchino. We actually do three of his songs on the album, um, Unexpressed and If I Ever Say I'm Over You. And the song we're going to do is the last song on the album. So we're, we're basically giving you a bookend of the whole CD. Mm-hmm. We're doing um, This Moment. And we also, this, uh, these two songs that we're doing are also the only two songs um, that are from our old repertoire that are in the new show. So um, here's this moment. All right. This moment perfect golden grasp it, see it. This moment Laughing, happy, feel it, be it. Curve of face, warmth of hands, butterfly. Pin in place when it lands, try, try this. Moment ripened, bursting, taste it, name it. This moment precious, fleeting, catch it, frame it. Curve of moon, warmth of air, willow Distant. 
All right. So your wow. show. I have total trust in you, summer. by the way. Complete <laughs> trust. Come summer. It's uh, it's the first time I've ever been uh, worked with a director on a cabaret show. So it's uh, it's been a. Um, an incredible learning experience for me because, you know, normally I don't have to have, um, I don't have to really think about, you know, the lighting, how I'm moving, how I'm working the room, uh, what I'm saying in between songs. I've just always just done whatever I wanted and it probably showed. Mm. Um, so, so this is more of a, a tighter set and it's, um, it's exciting for me. And Eric Michael Gillette, you know, um, he's been a, a gift to us. And we're very grateful, you know, that, that he that he worked with us on the show. And we've been working on it for many, many months together. The three of us sitting in my brother's um, steamy apartment, uh, getting this summer feel going. So mm. it's been it's been a joy. And that show runs through the 28th. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, the, you know, our listeners have a few days to catch us and run quickly to go see your show. But we also have a lot of listeners who are out of town. And, yep. and this show is going to be downloaded for a long time to come. Good. So a good thing to really focus on, again, is plugging that CD yes. of yours. Yes. Which will be available. The CD, probably when the next uh, couple weeks, will be available on CD Baby. And then once it's on CD Baby, within a, a, a few weeks, it'll be on iTunes. You know, we already have our Jacques Brel on iTunes. So if someone looked up, you know, Shira Ben David, um, they would find our Jacques Brel CD that we did years ago. Um, but, but on a carousel should be very, you know, should be um, coming to you very soon. But it's there. also currently and available a, at Barnes & Noble, too. Yeah, in a couple of weeks, too, I'll, besides that, I'll play a track from the CD on, on it as well. Awesome. To, to remind people. Great. That'd be great. Thank you so much, Michael. Awesome. And so they can hear. So the Algonquin, the CD on a carousel. Yes. Adam the, in the pit, Jersey, Jersey Boys. Boys. Ordering pizza. All good. Yeah. <laughs> Chinese food. We're enjoying the day. Yeah. And we're really happy that you had us here, too. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you guys so much for coming down and performing so early in the morning. (laughs) Great. And and wish all the best luck in all your endeavors. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Up close. Well, I'm sitting in the studio with somebody who has just walked away with the Tony Award on Sunday night. It's two days later, and he's still... I came into my studio. So I'm pleased to have Scott Lehrer, who just won the very first Tony Award for sound design for a musical at this year's Tony's. How are you doing for South Pacific? I'm great. Thanks for having me here, Michael. Yeah, like I said, I'm glad you could come in. So I guess the first question here is, what were the Tony Awards like, and, and what was it like accepting that award? Well, you know, I'd never been to the Tony Awards before in person. <laughs> um, you know, I've worked on a lot of shows that were up for Tony's, but... Uh, I guess selfishly, because we didn't have a category, I'd never actually attended the, the, the ceremonies before, so it was a little surreal going there for the first time and uh, being being up for a nomination. I was I, I was having a total anxiety attack because I'd never been to the Tony Awards before <laughs> and didn't really know what the what the scene was there. You know how to prepare for it, what to do, the Luck- protocol. Yeah, yeah. Um, my wife, on the other hand, just was like, she was as happy as could be, you know, uh, getting all ready all afternoon and getting out the fancy dress and wanting to walk down the red carpet. She was totally into it. It was fun. Um, and I thought, okay, we're the new kids on the block. We're going to be the first ones who get the who get the award. I've never been to this before. I don't know what I should be doing up there. I my anxiety level was so high. And then they just then they decided to they started doing a bunch of other awards first. <laughs> I was, okay, now I can see how other people do it. I can get a little taste of what, what I should be doing up there. And relaxed a little bit, so 
um, I was a little more ready when I went up there. Now, your um, nomination wasn't televised, so did that mean you get to speak a little longer on your thank yous, or do they still have the orchestra playing? No, well? it's very much like everybody from they, they said in the you know, they, they said in the preparation um, at the at the luncheon, everybody's got I think ninety three seconds or something from the time that we announce your name until you hear the music is ninety three seconds for everybody. So it was the same for everyone. Um, and I was concerned that I was going to talk too long, but it turned out um, I could have talked longer. I didn't. He- I didn't hear the. Uh, they kept playing the, um, the the mambo from from West Side Story. I don't know why. <laughs> um, well, I, mean, I guess to get your mambo off the stage. Well, in fact, the entire South Pacific design team swept the awards, the technical awards for musicals. So, uh, how did that feel? Was everybody in a celebratory mood afterwards? Oh, it was great. For me, it was it was especially great because. Um, Kathy Zuber and, and Don Holder took care of a lot of my thank yous in advance. <laughs> so, all I, so when I come, I said, you know what Kathy and Don said? Ditto. And I'll do a couple other things. But, um, uh, and then I was upstairs at the, after the awards with Don, and we were both going, so, so did Michael win? Did Michael win? And then the elevator comes up, and out of the door comes Michael. And we, were, we went, we were so happy we swept it, you know? Because it was, you know, as a design experience, you know, everyone always works hard. There's no question that everybody always works hard doing shows. But you don't always kind of hook up and are on the same and be on the same page in your work in the kind of way we were in South Pacific. You know, not like people don't get along. People get along, but just sometimes you're doing a show where one one area of design doesn't lock up with another, doesn't lock mm-hmm. up with another, and there's not a sense of everybody giving to one another in a way that happened in South Pacific. So we, you know, there was a lot of fellow feeling on that show because we felt like we really had created an overall design for the show that worked as something that made the larger picture work in a much stronger way, each department working with every other department. So we kind of felt like it was one big design in a way. Well, we've never had a sound designer on the show before. and Shame on you. I know that we got a couple first. Like last episode, we had our first orchestrators on. I was glad to finally uh, divvy that up. But and despite the fact that I kind of do you know a lot of audio work myself, I have to say I'm kind of curious. I'm not sure exactly what sound design on a on a player musical entails. I think a lot of people think special effects or sound effects, and that's not. I, I know that's not just it. But I'm kind of curious your take on what actually is involved with with sound design in a in a play or a musical. You know, I think other you know. This, is, this makes our work very different, I think, from the other design areas. And that we can see the lighting. We, can, you know, it's very. Well, I think also, I think like you know, if you're lighting a play or lighting a musical, yeah, when you're lighting a musical, there are there are a few more tools you bring into the lighting that you don't bring into plays. And when you when you're lighting plays, there are a few things you do that you just almost never do in in musicals, and vice versa, you know. But you're basically you're lighting the show when you're designing a scene scenery for a play or a musical. Yeah, there's a lot more of it in a musical, and you've got to think about a lot more stuff because it's about a stronger visual impact in a lot of ways over a lot of scenes. But it's still designing scenery. With sound, um, the main thing that carries through plays and musicals is the fact that you have to design a sound system um, in either case. In the case of a play, you're designing a sound system for primarily for playback of music and sound effects, and also for a little bit of vocal reinforcement, if necessary, depending on the size of your house. For a musical, 
you're designing a sound system that's primarily for reinforcement of, of the show. So the system that you're designing for a musical versus the system you're designing for a play are somewhat different from one another. Um, they're both sound systems, but they're pretty different from one another. Um, but the, most, the more important difference is that when you go in to do sound for a play, um, a big part of your job has been sitting down and talking to the director about the needs of the play, of the play in terms of oral environment. Um, you might or might not be working with a composer. You know, sometimes when I'm doing a play, my primary job is, is, um, is doing sound effects and sound ambiences for the show and possibly working with, um, with, with source music, with found music, maybe historical period or proper feeling, geographic region. Um, sometimes I'll work with musicians and work on kind of a quasi-score for the show. I don't consider myself a composer, but I work as a musical director and work with musicians to create a score for the show. Other times I'll be working with a composer um, on a show. Um, there are some sound designers who do a lot of plays, like John Gramada or um, Mark Bennett, or you know, there's a, there's a bunch of people on Broadway um, who do do music and, and are composers as well as sound designers for plays. So you, when you're doing a play, you're you're really thinking about the oral environment of the of the show. When you're doing a musical, it's a very different job. Your job is to actually like listen to the show, <laughs> understand the musical sensibility of the show, and what the musical needs are of the show primarily and reinforcing the musical sensibility of that show to the audience. So it's a really different job. So when you walk into doing a musical, you're basically looking at the singers on stage and the, and the musicians in the, in the pit and going, how do I need to get them into the sound system so the audience gets the best, the proper visceral sonic experience of the show? So is it your job also to like pick all the mics and, and decide which types of mics are used on the instruments and voices and, and that whole... Yeah, soup to nuts. I mean, it really is the whole, the whole thing. You know, all, when you're doing a musical, a lot of the time you do also have to deal with, with effects and stuff like that. You know, in South Pacific, we have a, a reasonable number of pretty complex sound effects uh, sequences in the show that because the show was such a big show, my, my associate Leon Rothenberg and our assistant Brid um, Bridget O'Connor... They, did, they primarily took care of doing the sound effects programming. You know, I did a lot of the research on the sound effects with Bridget. We selected effects, and then Bridget and Leon programmed the effects while I was sitting in a different part of the theater working on musical balances with Mark Salzberg, the production engineer. Um, so, um, you know, there's a lot of other aspects to doing sound for either a musical or a play that aren't even really even part, they shouldn't even be part of our purview, but somehow I think because we were like the, the last kid in, <laughs> they, got, they got dumped on us like communication systems. We're in charge of all the communications for the shows, both video and sound communications, headset systems, wireless headsets for stage management and carpenters and electricians, all the kinds of video monitoring systems for safety of the show. Well, that's those, a, and that's a very those, different thing to, yeah, that's very It's different. nothing to do with our primary job <laughs> as sound designers, but very complex jobs that basically when we start tech on either, either a musical or a play... If the video and intercom systems aren't working at the first minute of the first tech rehearsal on a Broadway show, you're in big trouble as a sound designer. Forget about whether or not you have great sound effects or great music or the system sounds good. The thing that we all, we all know we have to have ready for the first day of tech, forget about the sound system, is the stage manager and the director's voice of God mics better work. They better be able to talk to every member of every department on headsets, and everybody's video better be working. So, you know, and that's, those are big systems. Like a few years ago at Lincoln Center, um, when we did the frogs, 
uh, Stephen Sondheim's musical The Frogs, um, there were a lot of special um, uh, scenery elements in the show, a lot of dangerous um, high wire stuff, a lot of just like f- safety issues. We had 18 cameras on the show. Um, and wow. <laughs> just, just for safety, you know, that the stage manager needed those in order to call cues um, just to be able to know that, that they had safeties in place so that actors wouldn't get hurt or inju- injured or killed by, by scenery. You know, as we know, what recently happened, um, I'm spacing out on the show now, but, um, but uh, what, what happened to, um, to Adrian uh, where he, he almost got killed falling from, from up, in the, up in the air, 30 feet in the air. Um, it's a dangerous world there on stage. And, and those things have to work. So that's a kind of a side. That's, that's something on the side that's still very important to the show. That's our responsibility. Um, but once we get going, in the, uh, when we're doing a musical, my main job is sitting in the house and making sure that we're delivering the, the music, the musical values of the show to the, to the house in a way that somehow pleases the composer, the orchestrator, the producer, the director, um, the orchestrator, the actors. There's a there's a lot of there's a complex <laughs> matrix of, of of needs there that we have to compromise on. So we're very we're very much in the middle of all those people trying to come up with compromises that um, that please everybody, and hopefully also please ourselves as a designer. And with a play, it's really really pretty different because you're primarily just working with the director. You know, it's like you, you have conversations with the director while you're um, in rehearsal on the show, and sometimes you bring uh, your effects into rehearsals before you ever get in the theater, and you're working with them, having the actors listen to music and effects while they're in rehearsal. And it's really a, a dialogue between you and the director, and a lot of times the lighting designer, because music and, music and effects and lighting and, and what's going on on stage in plays is very often you want to sync together and make work as a piece. So you're sitting next to the lighting designer on one side and the director on the other, and you're taking in your stuff with them. It's, so it's a very different process, you know? It's, re, it's really very, it's, it's very different doing musicals and plays <laughs> as a sound designer. As a sound designer, does it ever frustrate you? Um, like when you got sets and costumes, everybody knows, you know, they can see, oh, nice big sets, you know, beautiful costumes, you know. I often feel, you know, working in sound that sound is most often noticed when it's bad. <laughs> and when it's and when it's good, it should be pretty invisible and really nobody thinks about it. And I'm, I'm kind of curious if, if that bothers you ever, that or or how well, you play you know, that game to make it as transparent as it possible. took us forty years to get a Tony Award. <laughs> you know, I didn't say me. It took yeah. us forty years to get a Tony Award. You know, it's it's a new art. You know, and people don't really understand it. Um, you know, and our old joke is, you know, when a review comes out of a show, the best thing, the best review of sound on a show is no mention at all, <laughs> because a, because basically the only time you'd ever get mentioned is when it's a problem. You know, that people who are reviewing the shows in generally haven't been sophisticated enough to understand what it takes to make a show sound like you don't want to make a bad comment about it. <laughs> you know, um, if you do, and if you don't notice it. That's good. It's just, you know, it's very similar with like, more with lighting for a play than lighting for a musical. I think in lighting for a musical, a lot of the time you want it part, to be you, you want you know it depends on the musical. You know, some musicals you don't do, some musicals you don't. But in a play, you want a lot of times you want the lighting to be invisible. You know, it should be something that's subliminal that that influences the audience's emotional connection to the show and focus on what they're looking at on stage without the audience really knowing. So I think 
whether you're working on a musical or a play with sound, your goal really is to kind of manipulate the audience emotionally um, and perceptually so that they're focusing on certain things on stage that they're not really aware of focusing on. So in a way, if it's more invisible, it's, it's more successful. It's like, you know, and I, I think there was, a, there was an article in The New Yorker recently about magic. I don't know if you read this article. It was really fantastic about, about well, it was partly about sleight of hand, about card tricks, about the art of magic, and how the art of magic is very much tied to understanding of, of fooling people visually, um, visuals perceptions, you know, that that's, you know, magic is really about fooling yeah. people, you know, is, a, is about... Distraction. And yeah, <laughs> is about finding the holes in our perceptual apparatus that allow magic to happen. You know, and I think, you know, what, what designers are doing a lot of time in the theater, probably primarily lighting and sound designers, because set designers, you know, it's supposed to be seen usually. Costume designers, it's supposed to be seen. You're not trying to uh, fool people so much. Um, but I think, you know, for lighting and sound, it really is a certain aspect of magic that you're, that you're doing, I think. Um, yeah, one thing about the transparency, you know, when I was talking to Michael Jurgen when he was in here the other day, you know, it, it, usually I notice it, and, and, and that's a bad thing. I, I, the over-amplification of, you know, singers and such on most Broadway shows, and, you know, and when he mentioned it, I just thought about it again. I truly didn't notice that the actors were mic'd in South Pacific. You know, in, in uh, competing with that 30-piece orchestra and stuff, it, it did sound very intimate with the thing. And he mentioned that you had something like a, a three-speaker theory or something, or is that tie-in or is that trade secret? <laughs> oh, no. I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's been a trade secret for a long time because nobody, nobody else cared about, about it other than the people who are in the sound design world. I mean, we've been using this, this specific trick for 40, well, not 40 years because the first digital delay units were introduced in the late 1970s, so 30 years people have, you know, understood that um, delaying systems was kind of the, the, the trick toward making systems transparent. Um, but it's only like in the last maybe six, seven, eight years where it's become possible to do that kind of delaying of systems with digital delay units to the degree that you can make systems really become transparent. You know, this the, the the cost of having large delay systems was exorbitant. There was no way you could do it. Now I'm probably going to head into territory that none of my listeners carry about. Well, there's probably a few, but I'm curious. What do you mean by the delay systems, and how does that how does that carry over into the transparency of the the mic actors? Well, the most simple thing is you know the the old uh, you know when, when we're trying in radio or in in television and movies to get across the idea of a PA system, you always put a slapback delay. Hello, hello. I'm talking to you, talking to you from the big stadium, big stadium. Well, right away that tells you big PA system. It right away gets um, you away from the idea of transparency. You're aware of the sound system. So the first thing you want to do is get rid of, get rid of those echoes, echoes. Part of the echoes have to do with the fact that there are multiple speaker systems at the same time putting out sound out of time with one another. You know, you have your original speaker system. In the old systems, there were no delay units. Mm -hmm. Well, they were, but they were with tape delay and they would break. And I mean, I've seen some of them. They were, they were crazy Rube Goldberg-esque <laughs> things. So you, you would want to actually time your speaker systems so that 
you have an initial source system and that any of the systems that are further out in the audience are delayed to the original source because ta- sound travels pretty slowly. You know, everyone thinks about, you know, physics stuff travels fast. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second, whatever. I think 8,100, yeah. Um, <laughs> sound only travels at 1,000 feet a second. So, I mean, basically uh, every thousandth of a second, sound's only traveling a foot. So if you're sitting in the back of an audience, the sound from the stage, from, from uh, a singer on stage, is reaching your, your ears a tenth of a second after it's actually happened on stage. But electronics, the, the things that we're transmitting through now, travel at the speed of light. Okay, they, so that, so it's, that, okay, now I so, got it. So what happens is we have these delay systems way out in the house to help reinforce the sound out in the house. If we didn't delay the sound coming from that person on stage through that, through that wire, going to the delay system because the sound coming from the microphone is traveling with electricity at the speed of light through the sound system to that speaker, all at the speed of light. That sound coming out of that speaker out in the back of the house is arriving pretty much, I mean, perceptually at the exact same time as the person is speaking on stage. So we hear the speaker out in the house first, sound travels from the stage, tenth of a second later we hear the original sound. So we're actually hearing we're hearing an echo, 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 echo. So what we do is we put 100 milliseconds, one-tenth of a second of delay in that delay speaker system so that when that voice travels those 100 feet, when the original acoustic sound of the voice reaches your ears, then the sound comes out of the speaker and reinforces it at the exact same time. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. I was curious. About simple physics. It's just yeah. simple physics. The thing that's not simple is um, you have a theater like the Vivian Beaumont, which is three-quarters surround, and you have multiple systems all over the theater going to people in the audience in all different places. Again, this is like – this is 10th and 11th grade math, right? Trigonometry. Yeah. It's just triangles. you got a person standing – High school students, finish your math. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, it's funny. I – I always wonder why we were learning about sines and cosines in, in, in high school. What's, what's about sines and the cosines and the triangle? Why are we learning this? And when I started doing professional sound, I, not, although before that, when I started getting into sound seriously in college, all of a sudden it struck me, how come didn't, somebody didn't tell me that there's really like a reason for learning this stuff? <laughs> you know, it actually has a f- real physical effect in the world, you know? We, we can actually do things because we understand sines and cosines. We understand... Um, how to deal with logarithms and things like that. These are, these are helpful things in the real world, you know. Um, so all this stuff is just basically it's just triangles. You know, you have, a tri- you have a person on stage, a person sitting in the audience, a speaker hanging somewhere that's the primary speaker system that's trying to get the sound to them, and there's a distance from each of those sources to the person. But you've got to carefully measure those distances and find out the delay time for each one of those positions. So in a big theater like the Beaumont, it's – a very complex set of numbers in the end. It's all simple math, but it's a lot of simple math. It's kind of brute force uh, arithmetic. For It's a lot of brute force arithmetic. But what that ends up meaning is if you do enough of that brute force arithmetic and you come up with the right set of um, compromises because you can't get it right for everybody, you know? The only way you get it right for everybody is everybody wore headphones. Yeah. And then you wouldn't have the, the, prim- the primacy of the experience of, of live performance. You'd be cut off from the live yeah. performance by the headphones. So, um, so you, the art is understanding how to come up with the compromises so that you get the best sound to everybody in the house. 
um, and still retain that sense of that the sound is coming from the place that it's originally coming, that it's originating from. Um, and, you know, depending on, and depending on the show, you can do that better or you can do that, you do that with more or less success. And it doesn't have anything to do with the who, who's the sound designer. It has to do with what the people are who are producing, directing, uh, creating the show want. Like you can't do what I'm talking about in a show like uh, Passing Strange. The, the, the needs of the show are, are such where in a rock and roll system, you can't do that, you know, because <laughs> the sound coming, a person can yell at the top of their lungs on stage and there ain't no way they're going to be as loud as a rock and roll sound system. And, you know, and truthfully, you don't really want it to be. The, prim- the, the primacy of the event in a rock and roll show is a big sound system sounding really loud. I mean, that's the way you want it to be. You know, so I think, I think what we did in South Pacific is f- good for that show. It's right for that show. And luckily, we had a director and producers and other artists who supported doing it that way because that's right for that show, you know. I mean, you couldn't... You couldn't find a better way of doing that show than making the primacy of the experience being what's going on right on stage, that it's an intimate, small experience. And the audience... <laughs> my computer beeped. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if she reminds me, I should have turned my phone off. But, um, you know, and that's right for that show. You know, I, what, I, what I worry about is there'll be some kind of conservative backlash on this. Like, you know, every show should have that kind of transparent sound. You know, it's, it, it's right for that show. You know, if to try to do what we did on South Pacific, on Passing Strange, or on In the Heights, would be wrong. Um, and that's also like, we're not technicians. We're, we're design artists, you know. We're, we're looking at the particular piece of work and going, what's right for that piece of work, you know. And sometimes we're at the, um, you know, we're really, uh, ultimately, because we're design, we're design artists. We're not pure artists. We're 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 doing what the director and the producer and the audiences want ultimately, you know. Um, and sometimes we do shows that should be more like South Pacific and aren't because the, um, I hate to say this, it'll get me in trouble, but the producers and the directors don't trust the audience to listen carefully. Um, and to some degree, they, maybe they're right. You know, the audiences have gotten used to being, having sound delivered to them at a very high level from television and movies, and that they've lost the ability to listen carefully. But on the other hand, South Pacific proves that that maybe isn't the case, you know? People are still willing to get really quiet in a theater and quietly listen and quietly pay attention as a group, as a group of 1,100 people sitting in a theater, not making a peep, hearing hearing that experience from on stage close up, you know? And of course, is they're not just hearing it from the stage because if they were just hearing it from the stage, nobody in the audience would be happy. You know? <laughs> so, but there's a way of like when you when you keep the level down below a certain what we call SPL or sound pressure level, you can you can continue to have that that trick that we call the precedence effect of that you're hearing the sound come from the place that it originates because you've created all these delay systems that are properly timed to the to the event on stage. Um, so at a certain point, the le- the sound um, pressure level in the sound system will get so loud that it's much louder than the actor on stage can can create, and you'll lose that effect, you know. And that's where the producers and the directors can push you too far, and, and sometimes wrong, wrongly for a particular show. That a show that wants to be intimate, they make bigger than it should be. 
Now, how did you move into sound design? Because I know you do a lot of other things. You're also a recording engineer and producer, and you have a studio in the city as well, right? Yeah, down on the Lower East Side. Um, well, I, I was being a, being a child of the 60s. Um, being a teenager in the 60s, I was in rock bands when I was in, in high school and went to college in the early 70s, uh, still kind of thinking maybe I wanted to be a rock musician or a rock folk musician or something. And I got into electronic music when I was in college. I luckily got involved in a music department that um, had uh, a really cool electronic music setup. And I had been a keyboard player in high school bands as well as being a bass player, tuba player, uh, harmonica player. I played a lot of stuff when I was, when I was a kid. Um, and um, this was the age of electronic music where you had to patch patch cables in to get sound out of sound modules. It was way before MIDI existed, way before all the, there was no, there were no computers, there was no MIDI, there was no, you know, no nothing. You barely had a keyboard. So you had to learn about audio in order to do the electronic music then. You were basically patching together sound modules and, and recording them to analog tape recorders and doing tape manipulation, like music concrete. Mm -hmm. um, so I learned a lot about audio at that point in college. And when I got out of college, um, I didn't really know what I what I was going to do. I was I was composing music for um, friends of mine from college who had dance companies and were you know doing their own choreography and starting small little theater companies. And I was doing technical direction work because I learned how to like how to do electronic stuff and I could do technical direction of events in the city to make a living. And I got a job with um, uh, to do sound for this small theater company uh, in the East Village called the Colonnades Theater Lab which was run by a, a director named Michael Lessack. And he was, um, his father was a very famous uh, voice teacher, Arthur Lessack, the Lessack Technique. And Michael had this company that was a company of resident actors, designers, and technicians that we, we all worked together all the time. We, we went into rehearsal together. We rehearsed every six days a week together. We all performed together. It was one of those kind of like life-changing experiences that, that you have that just says, you say to yourself, I think maybe this is what I want to do with my life because this is so amazing. Um, and we did a couple of productions there that were still, you know, this is, I was 23 years old, out of college, 1978 or whatever it was. Um, and I still look back at those productions uh, and think that maybe I've never done anything better than I'm in my life doing sound. Um, and it was you know and it was a cooperative company it was you know and it brings me back to south pacific because south pacific kind of had that same feel to it that all the designers were working together musicians designers actors director producer everybody was working together as it felt like a repertory company you know and mm -hmm. and of course when i was at the colonies i thought oh this is what theater could be like all the time you know <laughs> it's kind of like a little communal experience of people together getting together and creating group art you know and i found that it happens about 0.05% of the time, you know, where it really works that way. Um, you know, we had, like, these incredible people in the, you know, in the acting company at the Colonnades. Um, when I was there, we had um, – just when I, when I came there, just they were a couple people were leaving. Um, uh, Rhea Perlman and, and uh, Danny DeVito were in it. Peter Scolari, Michael O'Keefe, Deborah Monk. Um, I mean, these are people who were just – we were all making 100 bucks a week working in this little theater company in a, in a basement uh, in the East Village. Um, there were other, I mean, that, that's just, you know, all those people have gone on to these incredible careers. 
Um, and so I got the bug, you know. Um, you obviously got the bug and, and learned how to do a good job with that as uh, the industry just awarded you. Um, a couple things um, for what you do. If you know your listeners are interested in finding anything else, you have a website at scottlairersound.com. Uh-huh. Um, I know you just worked on Capathia Jenkins uh, and Lewis Rosen's two albums. We just had them here in the studio and talked about their latest album. And any anything else you want to kind of point out, some of your clientele or what you do? I'll, I'll well, plug, you know, I'll I plug just, for yourself. While you're well, around. yeah, I'll, sure. I'd love to plug <laughs> myself. Um, You know, this is all, uh, people probably say, you know, this business, it's all about relationships you develop over the years. Well, I've been working with Louis Rosen since, I think, 1987. He was fresh in New York, having moved from Chicago, where he'd been doing composing and doing work at, you know, places like Steppenwolf and other theater companies at the Goodman. He was working with Robert Falls when he first came to the Goodman. And um, and Louis came here and, and was doing a production of, I think it was, I want to say it was Coriolanus, uh, Shakespeare in the Park. And he had this big, like, 16-piece orchestral arrangement that he was doing. And I had this little studio on 19th Street that somehow he fit 16 musicians into the studio. And we recorded the score together for Shakespeare in the Park when he first moved to New York in 1987. And Louis and I have been working together on all of his music stuff since then. So um, we've been working on, like, developing his, his, both his, or, his orchestrations for, um, for plays and also his, his writing songs. And a few years ago, he and Capathia started working together, and we did the, the South Side Stories, the first record they did together, which I engineered and co-produced with them, and this recent one with Nicky Giovanni songs. And I just think Louis is such a great songwriter, and composer, composer and songwriter, arranger, orchestrator, and Capathia, I saw, her, I saw her in the lobby after the Tonys the other night, and um, I was with my family, and she came down with her big smile on her face. And Capathia is one of the most kind of just bubbly human beings on the planet. Um, and I and I just like I said I said I'm not saying this because I want to make her feel good or want to brag, but this is one of the great singers on the planet, and also one of the sweetest human beings on the planet. So you know, it's working with her and with Louis is just an incredible gift because I think Louis is such a great musician, and Capathia is just really one of the most spectacular singers. You know, she has this rare ability. And I'm, I'm not plugging myself now, I'm plugging her. But, you know, no, that's, that's the thing, you know, you get excited about doing a project, you know. Um, she has the rare ability, and I may get in trouble here, in a kind of broadly legitimate singer of making less into more in the sense that when she could sing out and blow out in a song, she goes the exact opposite direction. She goes, I'm going to get the, 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 the listener by singing this thing as quietly as I can, not as loud as I can. And that's such an unbelievable gift and skill to be able to figure out the dynamics of a song and go backwards and actually do the exact opposite of what you expect when you sing in a song. Um, and her vocal control at really, really soft dynamics are, are mind-blowing, you know? There's very few people who have a range as wide as she can who can sing with that level of control at those kind of soft volumes, you know? It's a it's an otherworldly gift she has. So it's fun. I mean, that's just fun. So you know, so I get excited about working with people like that. You know, I'm doing some other um, engineering production stuff right now. I'm working on a new record with Jason Daniele. Um, he's got a band and he's doing a lot of stuff that's like country pop, a lot of great stuff. Um, and actually, we're we're finishing up mixing it this week and mastering it. It's going to come out also on PS Classics on Tommy Krasker's label. Uh, I think later in the summer. 
Um, my studio partner, uh, his name is Dick Kinnett, is a um, composer, songwriter, who has a couple of records that we put out on, on Nonesuch over the years, a group called Last Forever. And we're finishing up some more material of his that, you know, the whole record label thing has kind of gone up in the, you know, up in smoke. So yeah. um, we're kind of starting our own label now. And the first thing that Dick put out was a solo cello record by the, the, um, the cellist Eric Friedlander that came out last summer and got picked up uh, by iTunes to be used on the iTunes commercials. One of the, I mean, it was a total mind, you know, just total luck thing. Uh, Errol Morris was doing these commercials for, for um, I'm sorry, for the iPhone. He was doing commercials for the iPhone and they selected one of Eric's tunes to be the iPhone music, for the iPhone commercial. So um, that was our first thing that we put out last summer and we're gonna be putting out some of Dick's music on, um, on this new label. It's primarily Dick's label. And we're also doing a new project this summer with, uh, with Loudon Wainwright. Um, there's a bunch of, I surely shouldn't talk too much about this because it's still up in the yeah. air, but we're starting to record a new record with him of him doing um, uh, some new music, let's say, um, which is a really exciting project. Um, so there's a lot of different, you know, the studio side of my work somewhat interacts with the, with the theater design side of my work, but it's, um, sometimes it goes in a totally different direction. Um, you know, I've, over the years, I've worked a lot, a lot with the, with the, I guess you call her a theater artist, Meredith Monk, and recorded an album with her a few years ago for, um, um, for ECM Records. Um, so, you know, it's a varied life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, final question to wrap this up. Uh huh. How heavy? I talk too much. <laughs> How heavy is the Tony? Heavier than you'd think. <laughs> so heavy that I'm going to embarrass her here, but so heavy that when my assistant Bridget picked it up, she didn't realize how heavy it was and she dropped it on the floor. <laughs> Let me see that, Tony. Whoop, hit the floor. When we were at the party the other night at O'Neill's for uh, uh, South Pacific. All uh, right. Scott Lair, fresh off your Tony win. Thanks so much for coming down and, and sharing sure. so much about your craft with, uh, with her audience and best of luck with your future endeavors. Thank you very much. Top of the trades. The Broadway revival of The Poetry Kissed, for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough, starring Grammy Award winner India.re, will begin previews at the Circle in the Square Theater beginning August 19th. Shirley Joe Finney will direct the production of Nzotsky Shang's Tony Award-nominated work, a collection of stories and poems featuring choreography by Tony winner Hinton Battle. The official opening night will be September 8th. Whoopi Goldberg and Dream Team Entertainment Group serve as executive producers for the revival. Complete casting will be announced shortly. The winners were the ones you wanted. Now about how some runners-up, huh? Finalists Ashley Spencer and Derek Keeling of the reality TV audition series Grease, You're the One That I Want, are expected to be the new Sandy and Danny of the Broadway's Grease. Osneys and Crumb were winners in the 2007 televised competition that sought to cast the new Broadway revival of the hit musical. Spencer placed second. Keeling was a finalist. They will be reportedly beginning performances July 22nd. According to the Times Online, Sir Cameron McIntosh, currently planning out the revival of Barnum on the West End, has someone in mind for the part originated by Michael Crawford, and that someone is Hugh Jackman. Could this be a sign John Barrowman, who was previously mulling a choice between Barnum and Phantom 2, is no longer in the running? Broadway World previously reported on Barrowman's dilemma between playing the title role in Barnum and starring in the sequel to Phantom, Phantom 2, Electric Boogaloo. 
The U.S. premiere of Sam Shepard's Kicking a Dead Horse, starring Stephen Ray and Alyssa Prizel, begins previews at the Public Theater June 25th. The two-hander concerns American art dealer Hobart Struther, who heads west in search of the real thing, but all he gets is a dead horse and an existential crisis. Hmm, that's what I got coming to New York from the west. Roundabout Theatre Company has announced on their website that a new interpretation of Hedda Gabler will be added to their new season lineup. Hedda Gabler is Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen's dark tale of a woman trapped in boring, loveless marriage who takes it out by manipulating everyone around her. The play, along with Ibsen's A Dollhouse, was considered one of the most controversial works of its time. The role of Hedda has been recreated by talented actresses such as Kate Blanchett, Kate Burton, Ingrid Bergman, Annette Bening, and Fiona Shaw, who did it even though she didn't have a B anywhere in her name. Roundabouts 2008-2009 will also include Pal Joey, starring Martha Plimpton and Stalker Channing. Curtain Call. Well, that wraps up this edition of Broadway Bullet, Volume 211. Uh, glad you stuck with us. We're going to be back again with some more great stuff on uh, July 10th. Remember, we're the second and fourth Thursday of every month. And uh, until then, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. Actually, the barfait thing comes from my whole life. People just chilling, vulture, boggler. So it didn't take much, though, when he um, proposed. I said yes. It's fun to know that those lines will stay in the show when other actors do it in the future. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. It was a thrilling moment. things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.